You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hello everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. On this episode, we take a deep dive into a couple of major issues involving USA Curling. We discuss the recent Yates report that shared details of the role that current USA Curling CEO Jeff Plush played in dealing with abuse complaints while he was commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League, and whether that should disqualify him from serving as the CEO of a national sports federation. We also discuss the continuing situation between the Grand National Curling Club and USA Curling. Hello everyone, as mentioned, this episode will be different than the usual From the Hack episode where we typically interview the winners of recent events or preview upcoming events. My first guest this week will be three individuals that have been members of USA Curling's Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Task Force who share their thoughts and concerns on Mr. Plush's ability to continue as a CEO of USA Curling given what was included in the Yates report. We will then be joined by Nancy Armour, a respected journalist for USA Today who has been providing excellent coverage of the NWSL scandal and how it might impact USA Curling and the larger American sporting community. And my final guest this week is Kristen Conrad, Vice Chair of the Grand National Curling Club, who joined me to discuss the ongoing tensions between the GNCC and USA Curling. As mentioned, I have three people who have been part of the DEI task force joining me today. Brian Pittard, founder of the Orlando Curling Club, current vice president of Granite Curling Club of Seattle, and current member of the USA Curling DEI task force and judiciary committee. Jen Nagian, Chinese-American limb, different adaptive club curler since 2006, founding member of the University of Denver Curling Club, a former board member of the Denver Curling Club, and a former USA Curling DEI Task Force Chair. And last but certainly not least, someone who might be familiar to some in our audience, Monica Walker, three-time national champion and former USA Curling national team member, who currently serves on the DEI committee at her local curling club, Broomstones in Wayland, Massachusetts. She is a co-founder of the Global Initiative for DEI in curling that seeks to initiate policy change at the world level and provide educational opportunities to learn about DEI in our sport. She was a member of the USA Curling DEI Task Force since its re-establishment in 2020, and she was also a member of the BIPOC subcommittee. There may be some people listening who are not familiar with the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Task Force. Are there any USA Curling board members or members of the Athletes Advisory Committee on the task force? And, and because timelines are going to be important, uh, an important part of our conversation, I'm hoping you can share when the DEI task force was first created. Uh, Jen, could you speak to this a little bit, please? Yeah, so the DEI task force, um, you know, our hope is for this task force is to build an open, welcoming, and supportive community for curling and USA Curling. Um, We want USA Curling to cherish diversity, foster a sense of belonging, and champion equitable opportunities. Um, So the USA Curling formerly was known as the DEI committee, and we felt that task force was a more actionable word for this group. Um, the committee actually dates back to 2016, 
Um, and I think first primarily focused on stick curling um, in trans trans curling issues. Um, and from there, it, you know, I think there was a little bit of a lull. I hadn't joined on until 2020. Um, but in 2020, um, I would say early 2020, even, um, I had reached out to join this committee. And I would say a lot of the um, the drive behind the committee was after George Floyd's murder, murder in May of 2020. Um, and from there, it really picked up. So we had created three different areas of the DI, DI task force. So um, a BIPOC space, a um, to talk about BIPOC issues and concerns within our organization. So BIPOC and adaptive space to talk about stick curling um, and also um, our LGBTQIA plus committee that we also help to um, that's been, I feel like the most active space that we've had with the task force. Um, and in terms of representation, it, it's all, all, um, all folks. So we have staff members, we have Jeff Plush, who's on the committee um, board members that are on the committee, as well as, you know, both uh, high level elite curlers, such as Monica and, you know, folks that are our daily competitive curler. Um, so lots of folks that are represented in this space. Now, in addition to the advocacy work that your group does to ensure that the sport of curling becomes increasingly inclusive, I was wondering if there are some major projects or initiatives that you are currently working on that people might be unaware of. Uh, Brian, can you perhaps share some of the important work your group is currently doing? Sure. So um, I'll give a couple uh, recent uh, and the ongoing. Uh, last year, and this is the culmination of, uh, of several years of work, uh, the LGBTQIA plus subcommittee of DEI, uh, we were working on a revision to USA Curling's transgender uh, participation policy. Uh, that policy, I believe, in its first incarnation came out in 2017, but it had still some, uh, some concerns from our committee that uh, included uh, medical testing uh, levels of testosterone and serum, uh, that we just did not see as relevant and necessary uh, for a more inclusive sport, uh, and certainly out of, a little out of alignment with other organizations, sporting organizations that had kind of moved past that. So uh, our group worked very hard uh, with great support from uh, USA Curling staff, including Jenna Martin uh, particularly, on getting that policy revised. Uh, we also had some some phenomenal members of our committee, including uh, J.C. Cooper, and uh, Natalie Rose uh, working very closely uh, representing those communities and making sure the policy was consistent with all these other great, uh, you know, organizational input. Uh, I believe uh, Sports Ally was involved in making sure that policy was good. So that policy actually did pass and was released uh, in, I think, October of last year. Uh, prior to that and then after that, I think a lot of the efforts we've been pr pursuing were getting more uh, clubs involved and understanding like individual curlers in those communities. So we did several videos uh, that kind of highlighted certain stories from transgender, uh, non-binary curlers, uh, adaptive curlers after that. I made sure those were included out on the USA Curling website and social media. Uh, additionally, and this is still up there, 
Uh, USA Curling did has has done a great job uh, of making sure there's good resources to uh, these issues up on their website. So up until uh, you know sometime early this year, uh, we've been really working pretty well as a group to target some of those issues uh, with USA Curling. Um, the most recent sort of ongoing discussions that we've been having were related to states that had transgender um, uh, policies or laws on the books that would limit participation from transgender athletes and just ongoing discussions about what that means as an organization in terms of holding events for curling in those states and communities. But that kind of didn't really go too far and we kind of got stuck on some issues with with various implementation details, but that is still an ongoing uh, topic of discussion. The other thing we're focusing on is grassroots curling uh, initiatives like uh, we call them pride spiels uh, for LGBT, LGBTQIA community to gather and have uh, safe spaces for bond spiels, but also encouraging uh, league involvement, community outreach, and, and those kind of uh, topics is, is kind of what our subcommittee has been pursuing. Uh, the most uh, active uh, DEI task force or committee uh, agenda that we've had recently is just formally establishing a charter. And that actually happened uh, earlier this year as well. Uh, so those are some of the ongoing tasks that we've been investigating. Of course, you know, I, I would be remiss to mention the uh, the uh, BIPOC inclusivity like program that several of the DEI task force members had put together. Um, Deb Martin and Dean Gimmel had been working on that uh, separately kind of from the larger committee, but has been working on a good program to uh, provide to clubs for that resource uh, for those communities. So, so those are kind of a, a sampling of some of the efforts. Monica, is it fair to say that the DEI task force has had a good working relationship with USA Curling through these various projects? I would say yes and no. Um, I was part of the DEI task force when it first um, was reinstated back in 2020 and um, was very excited to be a part of it. Um, there were a lot of great people that I got to meet and we, like Brian outlined, were involved in a lot of exciting projects that I felt would have good impact on the curling community in the U.S. as a whole. Um, over time, I actually stepped away from the, the task force um, for multiple reasons, some personal reasons in there, too. I, I was pretty busy with um, competitive curling as well as being involved with DEI efforts at kind of all levels of curling um, globally and at my local curling club. So I had some personal reasons for stepping away, but I also was frustrated with um, some of the kind of delays in, in getting certain tasks uh, accomplished, one being the charter that Brian mentioned. So um, in my experience, um, it's important for an organization that wants to be involved in DI efforts to have a statement out there that kind of indicates their values and their position on, on certain items. And the charter is intended to kind of outline that. And um, we had a lot of kind of delays and difficulties getting that charter to be approved by USA Curling, both by um, Jeff Plush and, and the board. And for me, I felt that it wasn't possible for the committee to fully do the work that it wanted to do without that charter in place that really had the values and the mission of the both USA Curling and the task force down on paper for everyone to see. I know that we've had, <clears throat> Jen was a fantastic um, leader of the, de the DEI task force. And we also, um, once she stepped down, we had Bobby Todd as well. And 
But unfortunately, both of them stepped away from the committee. And um, I don't know, Jen, if you want to speak a little bit to that, but I think that's indicative of some of the struggles we've had as well. Yeah, thanks, Monica. I mean, I think we have had great and not so great engagements with USA Curling in the sense of, you know, we've tried, especially early on, we've tried to implement a lot of practices. um, And many times we would email and not get responses. It'd be several delays, long delays in trying to get folks to respond. And we understand that this is, there's other things that were happening during this time. It was pandemic. There's lots of other issues. And just many times we'd have to follow up um, with them just to respond. Um, And yes, I had left not only because of personal reasons and also because of the frustrations that I was having with USA Curling. It felt like we were trying to implement change, trying to drive, you know, we had actionable items that we wanted to do. And it was always, oh, we need to approve it through the board, of course. And it just felt like it never would move. There was always a something that would prevent action moving forward. Um, so, you know, that was a lot of why I had left with frustration that nothing was moving forward um, with this committee. Um, well, I, I shouldn't even say with our committee. Our committee was moving um, in, in the sense of USA Curling supporting and acting on this, on our suggestions. Sorry, if I could just add to that point, though, one area that we were frustrated with most recently with USA Curling was the issue I alluded to about uh, sort of um, not hosting competitive events in states and communities that had uh, transgender restrictive uh, policies. So this is an area that um, our committee did put forward a recommendation, again, written by two of our two of our committee people who are members of that community. And basically, we got stymied in that effort um, by USA Curling staff, partly for good reasons like existing contracts and certainly not wanting to punish a very, you know, welcoming and inclusive club that just so happened to be in a state that did not reflect that those values. But uh, there was a little bit of frustration uh, in that area. The other area that was a little bit of a concern and confusion was uh, there was a attempt to make uh, pride themed merchandise for USA Curling, and the proceeds were going to actually go back to, uh, they ended up going back to the Trevor Project, uh, a fabulous, uh, you know, supportive and, uh, nonprofit for the LGBT community. But the the sort of rollout on that topic and some of the coordination was a little uh, muddled and didn't directly involve our committee in a, in a, in a, in a, in a collective way and, and instead kind of individually targeted certain members of our group that had pride spiels. And, and it was kind of a muddled mess, but Uh, I think uh, those concerns and some of the other kind of just coordination pieces, I know the most recent is the announcement of a DEI position. Uh, They actually want to hire a DEI coordinator at the staff level of USA Curling, and that is something that our committee had absolutely no purview on, uh, surprised us as much as I think anyone uh, else, and uh, we kind of have been left out of that. But, you know, this gets into the organizational uh, like the people who get paid to work for an organization, the people who volunteer, and some of the interfaces and in that are not uncommon in, in those uh, like nonprofit management situations. But having said that, our committee has been, um, let's say, increasingly frustrated with some of these uh, these kind of interface and coordination issues. So I, I totally agree with what Jen and Monica have uh, experienced. 
Do the members of your task force feel like they have the ear of the CEO of the USAC, Jeff Plush, or is it a case of a CEO technically being on, being on all of an organization's committees, oftentimes with limited involvement? Uh, if I could speak to that, uh, being more recently part of this effort, Jeff would actually be at, um, I wouldn't say certainly all of the meetings. In fact, earlier on in our um, process for the uh, the transgender uh, policy revision, he didn't seem to be too directly involved. But uh, over over time, he did dial into to multiple meetings and did have meaningful input. And especially when it came to that interface between the non uh, the volunteer committee that we have and the professional staff interface with that organization. So uh, I would not characterize Jeff's uh, interaction or support of the committee to be a to be a, he he was involved and not just as a token. Uh, has to be there kind of situation, at least from my perspective. But I'd be curious from from Jen and Monica's uh, that kind of predates my involvement. Yeah, um, I guess I was encouraged by the fact that um, Jeff was attending these meetings for the time that I was part of the committee. Um, I did kind of question his motives a bit. Um, one of my ideas was to start an athlete group that would um, have regular meetings and kind of discuss DEI concerns, whether it be uh, national team focused or open to the rest of the like curling athlete pool. Um, and when I expressed my kind of desire to start a group like this, um, I actually had a phone conversation with Jeff and he kind of warned me a little bit, um, just kind of wanted to make sure that I wasn't um, starting anything that maybe he couldn't have control over potentially, or um, was just kind of wondering what my goals and intentions were, I think. So that was a little bit interesting for me that he wouldn't be fully supportive of getting more athletes involved in this DEI work, especially in prominent roles and positions like athletes on the national team. I'm curious to know when the members of the task force first became aware of the magnitude of the NWSL abuse scandal that came to light after Jeff Plush left as commissioner of that organization to eventually become the CEO of USA Curling. Uh, Monica, if we can start with you, please. My first um, experience hearing about uh, what was going on at the NWSL was actually as a a national team um, athlete. Uh, I think an ad hoc town hall kind of meeting was arranged and and Jeff brought all the national team members together and we had a discussion about um I don't even really remember how it was kind of laid out for us uh I think he indicated that there was going to be some like press attention um and that if anybody kind of had any concerns or wanted to reach out they should but he didn't provide a whole lot of context about um what was going on and I don't think a lot of the athletes were aware of the fact that he was previously the commissioner at the NWSL. Um, I happen to know that just because I follow the NWSL and I'm a big fan of it. Um, But yeah, I think for a lot of athletes, they were probably quite confused about what he was referring to. And um, the general tone of the meeting was a little bit, he seemed a little bit uncomfortable and it was just a very bizarre kind of town hall meeting that we had. Monica, you just mentioned that Jeff Plush had met with the members of the High Performance Program in what resembled a town hall meeting. Once things really started to percolate a few weeks ago, especially when the Yates report was released, did Mr. Plush or anyone at the USAC board reach out to you or to your group, your board, uh, to keep you informed and updated on new developments? Um, To be completely honest, as an athlete, that was kind of the last I I heard of 
um, anything involving that investigation, NWSL investigation. Um, and generally speaking, I we didn't get a whole lot of like regular formal communication from USA Curling involving um, some of the national team objectives and approaches. Um, it, communication has been a struggle for me regarding being on the national team. So something like this Yates report um, was definitely not discussed further. So I can speak to the um, 2020 period since uh, certainly not when he was hired, was that something brought up to us uh, at at that time? But uh, since that time in any internal investigations that have happened or any announcement about the Yates report, any, anything related to that has not been brought to our group's attention whatsoever. We have not been involved in any part of that investigation. We were not aware uh, ahead of time that that was something that was, of a concern. It, it, it has been completely, uh, at least again, from, from my active experience, uh, it has not been brought to this group. Now, back in February of 2018, uh, USA Curling reaffirmed their commitment to the safe sport program and policy. And, and Monica, from conversations you've had with other athletes within the USAC program, I'm wondering if some of the athletes may no longer feel safe in an environment where the head of the USAC seemingly did so little to help protect athletes in his role as commissioner of the NWSL outside of forwarding emails to people when made aware of potential abuse issues. Well, I think. Um, let's talk about safe sport, right? So my impression of this entire um, issue is that it's both systemic, but also people focused, right? There's people making mistakes, but also systems that are broken. And so the safe sport program on paper um, has the best of intentions and is a great kind of addition for national governing bodies like USA Curling to include in their portfolio to protect their athletes, to provide venues for athletes to safely and anonymously, if desired, um, report complaints that happen with them in their sport. Um, And unfortunately, um, I think part of this, the problem with this issue is that we have people, we have somebody like Plush who maybe didn't necessarily do the right thing, but also perhaps the system with safe sport isn't the best that it could be either, whether that be due to underfunding, um, not enough people working there, not enough time to perform the investigations. Um, I think what you ask about safe sport and if if athletes at USA Curling are concerned about, um, you know, their safety within the program, given that they're currently under the leadership of somebody who was involved with another organization where that that safety was not maintained. Yes, I think that's a huge concern of ours as part of this USA Curling DEI task force. I think that's probably our primary primary concern in all of this is that our, we want to keep our athletes safe and make sure that they feel comfortable bringing forward issues um, if and when they need to. And I think part of um, what's going on is that the system's broken and Unfortunately, right now at USA Curling, the recipients of Safe Sport complaints happen to be Jeff Plush and the CFO, Eric Gleason. And so when you have a report like the Yates report come out, um, that really calls into question, is this the right person to be receiving these types of complaints at USA Curling? 
Now, Brian, I know that you are much more of a recreational curler than Monica is. Uh, when news of what happened in the NWSL while Jeff Plush was commissioner of that organization, did you get a sense that even curlers at local clubs were concerned about not necessarily their immediate safety at their club, but perhaps their safety when competing at USAC events? Uh, being a dedicated curler, uh, having started at least one curling club, uh, started multiple bond spiels, being very passionate about these uh, these these curling related intersections with community and culture and and, and people. Uh, when I became aware of this issue, and the women around me on my committee told me how they felt about this issue with with, with these uh, the, the allegations and the uh, the H report and Jeff's handling. Uh, and and also some of the issues with safe sport, like I listened, and that is to 100% why I am concerned because I am be- I believe curling has to be safe and has to be in- accepting and welcoming. I mean, the spirit of curling it, it, it sums it all up, right? Like that's our philosophy at at a, at a minimum. So uh, all of these uh, potential concerns to me uh, compelled me to to take you know this. Uh, this this stand and make this statement uh and 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 you know no matter where you are in the curling world uh especially you know within the safe sport uh, compliance uh part you you are you are 100% responsible for compliance and uh concern about these issues uh so i i do take that and i have been safe sport certified since i was in orlando like 4 years ago five whenever they started uh you know having that compliance i i have been up to date and believe in it. So, uh, yeah, it's very important to me that we follow this and are are above board and responsive to any concerns or allegations. So on October 12th, the DEI task force uh, published a statement that included four points, ranging from demanding the uh, immediate removal of Jeff Plush as CEO to demanding that all USAC board members resign if Jeff Plush was not removed. You also requested that all safe sport complaints made since Jeff Plush has been CEO of the organization be revisited, and you demanded that the details of the internal USAC investigation that was launched following the publication of the Yates report be released. Did anyone at USAC board reach out to you following the release of your statement or has it completely fallen on deaf ears at the USAC level even though your statement I know for a fact has not fallen on deaf ears in the remainder of the larger curling community in the United States I have received no direct communication from any member of USA curling regarding our statement Uh, I believe we did receive a response back uh, upon a second email uh, that included the USA Curling Board. Uh, we did receive a response back from the chair. So I'm wondering if transparency is a growing concern for the DEI task force through this process, considering the fact that the USAC has completed an internal investigation on the matter and has released no details about that investigation when it would have been relatively easy for them to provide a summary of the results of that investigation without necessarily divulging information that would cause further harm or stress to the athletes that were abused in the NWSL which, to be honest, seems to be the overarching reason that has been given as to why the findings of the internal investigation by the USAC have not been released publicly. Yes, so transparency has, of course, been a major concern throughout this entire um, incident. Um, I don't think you would see all the curling club's statements out there in social media if it weren't. Of course, everybody involved with USA Curling wants to respect the privacy 
and safety of the athletes that are involved in the ongoing National Women's Soccer League investigation. But um, I have a hard time believing that um, the investigation that USA Curling has independently commissioned and conducted um, would involve any information that was not captured in the um, very extensive Yates report. I know Brian indicated that we did not really receive a response to the um, the DEI task force statement um, that we put out uh, from USA Curling, and he's not wrong, but we did receive communication from Lynn LaRocca, who's the current chair of the board, um, and she essentially restated sentiment, sentiments that were previously released in the very limited um, USA Curling board statement in support of Plush on October 13th. Um, She says that due to the results of the um, internal USA Curling investigation and based on conversations that the board has had with Plush and due to his actions as CEO of USA Curling, the board feels that he is still suitable to be acting as CEO. So let's talk about the investigation that USA Curling commissioned. That investigation was performed by an individual at an organization called Metro Legal Services out of Minnesota, um, which is headed by Scott Gray, um, who happens to be an investigator that I myself have personally spoken to during previous safe sport investigations, of which I was a part of, even before Plush became CEO. Um, That investigation was supposedly commissioned on October 3rd and completed on October 13th when the board of director statement was released. Um, now I don't know what it entails to be a private investigator, but I certainly feel that a 10 day investigation performed by, um, a a Minnesota local, um, private investigator firm, um, could not and would not be comparable to the extensive, um, and very like well-funded, well-resourced report that Sally Yates and, uh, and her firm put out over the course of an entire year. Uh, I just don't understand what information um, would be obtained in 10 days that um, Yates wouldn't have been able to capture in her report. And um, I have trouble um, wrapping my head around how those two reports could be comparable and and what new information would be gleaned from um, USA Curling's investigation. And so that's where I think this, the struggle is for us as USA curlers to, to understand, you know, why, what is so different about this investigation? Why are we not privy to it? Um, like you said, Frank, I think they could at least to summarize um, the basic kind of concepts out of it um, and help us understand. Otherwise, it really just comes across as complying and honestly, covering up um, what's actually happening and not being transparent about it, very similarly to what I would actually say Jeff was a part of when he was the commissioner at the National Women's Soccer League, and that inaction or um, lack of clearly communicating what's actually going on that's a problem. The final point I want to bring up with the three of you is an argument that I've heard from some people who say that technically Jeff Plush did his job when dealing with reports of abuse at the NWSL. Information and complaints were forwarded to him and he pushed them up the ladder to his bosses who just so happened to be the owners of the teams in the NWSL. Now many would argue that this is an oversimplification and that it would have been possible and even easy for Mr. Plush and others to do much more to protect the product of the NWSL 
which is essentially their players, several of whom were abused or made to feel uncomfortable in their environment while the league was under Mr. Plush's watch. Monica, what do you think of the argument that ultimately, despite the fact that they may not look good or feel good from different perspectives, that technically Mr. Plush did what was required of him? Um, In my opinion, um, yeah, I can have empathy for him that perhaps within the structural um, organization that he was a part of, maybe he followed the policies and followed the rules, but he's still a human that's operating um, and he has ethics and morals that have to be upheld. And he has a responsibility as a person and for humanity to do the right thing, especially with regards to um, complaints of this nature. And, you know, when I started getting involved in DEI work back in 2020, one of the first things that I learned um, that really hit home for me was that inaction and silence means that you're complicit with the way things are. And I think um, I'm not going to make a statement necessarily on whether I think Jeff did the right thing or, or not. I don't know all the details, but I do think that there's evidence in the AIDS report that indicates that potentially he did not um, speak when he should have. And I think that's worth looking into more. Um, and I think that's what uh, our statement as the USA Curling DEI Task Force really sets out to do is that we want to raise these questions. We want answers. We want people to look into this and pay attention to this, particularly regarding the current safe sport complaints that may or may not be happening at USA Curling and how those are dealt with. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with athletes and former USA staff members in the past week, and I know that there's a lot of fear of um, retaliation. If if change doesn't happen and people speak out, then they, they fear what could happen to them or that a lot of people have, you know, a lot to lose if they're still involved with USA Curling. So I think we really want to raise the point that this needs to be looked into further. And I just would like to add that I, I feel a lot of responsibility to look after our athletes uh, in, in a position that I'm in. I'm vice president of a curling club or a member of a committee that has direct purview to the head of a national organization it, it to me leadership is is at its best about taking a stand and taking responsibility and you know we're talking about the minimum you know did did jeff do the minimum and you know we're not jeff we weren't in that position we can't say that he could have done more but i believe that we should do more and in the capacity as the leader of usa curling uh an organization that we are all members of and that we want to maintain and, and, and keep as a inclusive and safe uh, sport and be like a leader in those areas. To me, the minimum is to restore full trust in our processes and our safe sport compliance. Uh, and honestly, restoring that trust means Jeff needs to just step aside. That That is the thing, I think, at the end of the day, why our group current and former members of this DEI task force said what we said, which is we want Jeff to step down. That will help restore. That will be the beginning of the conversation to help restore trust in our organization. In addition, of course, releasing the reports so that everyone has the data to understand why decisions were made regarding his continued employment, uh, why he was hired in the first place, given that these concerns were known of at the time. And, Revisiting the safe sport allegations and reports that have been made during his tenure because we believe there is a possibility that it 
wasn't the, the, the same the same mistakes were made again that things may not have been elevated and responded to appropriately and we just need to know we need to restore the trust with our member uh curlers and other member organizations that we curlers believe in the spirit of curling and safe and accessible uh curling for everyone no matter what your gender uh orientation ethnicity uh, ability everything we are the most inclusive sport and we need to stand by that my next guest is nancy armor an enterprise reporter for usa today who has been covering the nwsl abuse scandal and the fallout from the yates report so nancy can you take us back to the period before the publication of the yates report what were you hearing from your sources about the yates report and was there a sense that it would be as bad as it was um You know, I think there wasn't a whole lot of um, thoughts or predictions about what the AIDS report would find. Um, The the stories that were done last year by Meglin Hanna of The Athletic and and Molly Hensley-Clancy of The Washington Post were were pretty detailed. Um, And so it was, you know, when these investigations were commissioned, it wasn't, no one was expecting that that the Yates, whether it was Yates and her team or the independent investigation, joint investigation that is still ongoing. So it really wasn't a question of, it was more a question of how deep was this going to go? How many people knew? And and where the breakdowns were, you know, who were the people who had been told? Who were the people who should have told others? And I think that's what everybody was waiting to see was, you know, like I said, it, you know, we knew that, Portland had not done the right thing. Um, you know, we knew that Chicago had not done the right thing, but it was kind of everything else. You know, what, where else was this going to land? Um, and so, you know, we've obviously gotten the ACE report now, and we're still waiting to see what, what happens with the joint investigation uh, between the NWSL and the NWSLPA. So I'll never pretend to be an expert in legal issues, Nancy, but when someone is involved in a situation as one as the one that occurred in the NWSL and that person did exactly what was expected of them, they typically don't refuse to participate in a large-scale investigation where their name could be cleared. From the work you've done covering sports-related legal issues, is that a common practice for individuals? I, I ask because most people, especially those who are not knee-deep into the legal aspect of things, would argue that if someone has nothing to hide and did exactly what was expected of them by their organization, then why not accept to be part of an investigation? Yeah, and I think that's a natural inclination to have that kind of reaction. Um, two things to consider, you know, if people don't talk, a lot of times it's because they've been advised by lawyers not to. Um, and there were, there was a, a, I believe there was one or two people that said that, that, um, you know, they didn't, they respectfully declined under advice of legal counsel. Um, what was, what to me was curious is I reported last week that, Flush had told USA Curling staff when the athletic story came out, so back in October of uh, 2021, that he had done, he was fully confident that he had done the right thing when he was NWSL commissioner and was looking forward to talking to investigators, participating in any investigation that he was, I think he said he was eager um, that an investigation was would be done, um, which that is the suggestion that you would participate. So it was then very curious that he, not only did he not cooperate with or, or talk to Yates, he didn't even return her phone calls. You know, she said at one point in the, in the report that he did not 
acknowledge repeated outreaches from Yates and her team, which that to me, that is a, a question. Why, you know, if you don't have anything to hide, why wouldn't you talk? But more, why would you say that you are, would be willing to cooperate with any investigation and then not do that? One of the arguments that has been made in defense of Mr. Plush is that technically he did his job. He received information and complaints about abuses within the organization and passed it to others at the U.S. Soccer Federation and to his bosses, which in this case were the owners of the teams in his league. From your experience reporting on similar stories, is that a fair argument to make in his defense? Or at a bare minimum, should uh, Mr. Plush have done more to protect the players who are essentially the core product of the league he was overseeing? Well, I think, and once again, I have a couple thoughts. Um, there, there could be some some questions about whether he actually did do his job because um, when the I believe it was the North Carolina Courage was considering hiring Paul Riley, they asked um, Jeff Plush about a report, a 2015 report that they thought exonerated or cleared Paul Riley, and according to the North the courage owner plush kind of put him off. Um, didn't he kind of hemmed and hot or, or, you know, it wasn't real clear, but he didn't give him the report. And it's quite clear that the reason that he didn't give the report was because the report did not clear Paul Riley. It showed that he had, um, you know, had sexually harassed, sexually coerced some of his former players. Um, then you also have the issue with the uh, Chicago red stars that the player surveys, um, in 2015, several of the players had mentioned that Rory Dames, the coach at the time, was verbally abusive and was was controlling um, just, you know, not things that you would want your coach to to, you know, behaviors that you want your coach to exhibit. Um, the owner of the Red Stars says that he never saw those survey results. Um, so you know, is that not, is that doing your job if you're not providing as the commissioner of the league, if you are not providing uh, the owner of a league or the owner of a team with negative reports about his own coach? I mean, I would think that should be probably part of your job as commissioner, but you know, what do I know? So, but then you also look just from a basic decency standpoint, if you have women who are telling you that these coaches are berating them, and again, these are not shrinking violets. These are professional athletes. Some of the women who were who were involved were World Cup champions and Olympic gold medalists. Um, you know, so they're used to being coached. They're used to tough coaching. There's a big difference though between tough coaching and abusive coaching. So if you have people telling that, is it really enough to say, "Oh, I did my job"? You know, you're leaving people in harm's way, and I, I, I hate the the notion that you have to be you have to have some sort of personal connection in order to feel empathy you know like the people who say oh i would never do this you know because i'm not the father of a daughter or whatever but don't you have some empathy you know how can you look yourself in the mirror and know that women were being abused whether it was sexually physically emotionally verbally and not do everything you can to stop it now, to be honest, Nancy, and I rarely give my personal opinion on this podcast, but when you're leading an organization and members of that organization, in this case, your players, who are essentially your core product, are being abused uh, by individuals within their respective franchises, the natural instinct of most people would be to go above and beyond to not only protect the individuals, but ultimately protect your product. You know, and you brought up a good point. If you are the commissioner, your job should be to put, make sure that you are putting 
your teams are putting the best product out on the field as possible. And if women are being bullied and sexually harassed, sexually coerced on the field. So from that standpoint alone, why would you not want to stop that in, you know, give your league every chance to succeed? Because ultimately, if you're a commissioner, um, you, you know, you're going to be judged on the success and failures of, of your league. And I can't imagine that this, you know, that kind of an environment is going to be a recipe for success. Earlier, Nancy, you mentioned that there were ongoing investigations uh, being done by the NWSL and the Players Association. Can you provide any more insight on those investigations and whether they were ongoing before the Yates report was published or if they are a response to the Yates report? No. So when when these stories were published by, again, The Athletic and and uh, um, The Washington Post, and again, if you have not read them, I would highly encourage you to go back and, and do them. Megan and Molly did terrific work. Um, the... U.S. Soccer hired Sally Yates because obviously some of the 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 breakdowns occurred on U.S. Soccer's watch. Um, they were some women reported to them, or they were used, and they didn't do anything to stop it. Um, but the players, the NWSL players, also wanted the league to do something. They didn't want, you know, not for the league to wash its hand, but they they basically wanted the league to take some accountability too. So that was one of the things that was agreed to in the weeks after um, these stories came out that uh, the league would do its own investigation. It would be independent. So they've hired their own law firm and the name of it escapes me, um, but another very reputable law firm. Um, and they are, so that investigation has been conducted along the same track or along parallel tracks to the Yates investigation. Um, I'm sure that they are talking to many of the same people, but we don't know that because just as the Yates report was, uh, um, you know, done, I don't want to say in secret, but they, they didn't disclose what they were finding as they were going along. That's been the same, the same with the NWSL and NWSLPA investigation. Now, one thing that they have done is as that investigation has gone on, if they have found cases of abuse um, involving people who are still involved in the sport, they have come out and said that. So you have actually seen that there was just some discipline handed down last week um, involving the Orlando team. But there have been there have been some disciplinary cases that have already come out about, you know, in relation to this joint investigation by the NWSL and the NWSLPA. So it's digging down a little deeper um, into really any, um, they're looking at any abuse complaints, I think dating back to 2013. Um, And these can be things like, you know, one of the complaints in Orlando was that there was favoritism um, going on, that uh, the coaches had had her favorites in, in terms of players, and that's that in influence team selection, that type of thing. So it's it's digging down a little deeper than the Yates report did. And, and by that, I mean, like I said, they're looking at anything um, league related as opposed to, you know, the, the, the Yates report looked at some of the, the allegations that had already been made and looked to see, okay, how did these happen? Where did the breakdowns occur? I think it's fair to say that Jeff Plush landed on his feet following his departure from the NWSL, Nancy, becoming the CEO of a national sports federation. Was that also the case for other people that were involved either directly or indirectly in the NWSL abuse scandal? I think most of the people who were involved at U.S. soccer have since left. Um, now, did they leave because of this? Not necessarily. Like uh, um, Sunil Bawadi, who was the uh, president of U.S. soccer, 
basically left because the U.S. men failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. Um, that was considered a, a failure on his part. Um, so I, I don't know that anybody has necessarily really paid a price with their jobs for the failings, except for the coaches who were accused of abuse. Um, but there's still, and that's, that's, there's some anger out there, obviously with, um, you know, the, there's a move in Portland now to try and, you know, fans are calling for Merritt Paulson, who's the owner of both the NWSL Thorns and the Timbers of the Major League Soccer, um, for him to sell the team. And, you know, there's similar calls in, in Chicago and, there's been some rumblings about, you know, whether people in New York and Carolina did enough too. Those are other places that Paul Riley coached. Um, so they're, they're, the main perpetrators are no longer involved. Um, but aside from, like I said, aside from the coaches, really nobody paid a price with their job specifically because of these abuse allegations. So one of the concerns that I've heard from individuals in the U.S. curling community, Nancy, is that it appears that safe sport complaints made on the USA Curling website go directly to Jeff Plush and another member of the executive. Now, this would be perceived as problematic by some even under normal circumstances, but given what has come out in recent weeks with regards to Mr. Plush's handling of abuse complaints while at the NWSL, it has certainly caused some curlers to question how safe and protected they should feel at the moment. Can you speak to how safe sport complaints are usually handled at the different sports federations that you've uh, reported on in the past. Sure. And one thing, let me, I, I need to correct myself when I said nobody has lost their job. The, the previous, the uh, NWSL commissioner, Lisa Baird, she lost her job, as did the council at the time when all of this stuff broke last fall. So correcting myself on that. So in the U.S., United States, every Olympic national governing body, so USA Curling is obviously part of that, um, is subject to Safe Sport, which is a national clearinghouse for abuse cases in the Olympic movement. Now, the, the, the center mostly takes sexual abuse cases, um, sexual, you know, sexual misconduct cases, but occasionally it will take cases if they would involve a conflict of interest. Um, you know, I covered you a, a, a sexual abuse scandal at USA Taekwondo, um, and for a while they were giving Safe Sport all of their uh, abuse complaints because the the, the just the the leadership was so screwed up that they didn't feel no one felt confident that they could resolve cases without some oversight. Um, so if there are any cases, any abuse cases made involving USA curling, you know whether it's sexual misconduct, uh, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, that is supposed to be forwarded to Safe Sport. So there should be again, should be in the operative word, there should be a safety valve. Now, the problem is, and, and Sally Yates noted this in her report, is that SafeSport has a massive backlog. It basically came online right about the time that Larry Nasser was sentenced. He was the gymnastics, uh, the team physician for USA Gymnastics, who abused hundreds of young women, including some of the most famous U.S. Uh, gymnasts. Um, so they were inundated with cases and they are still, you know, it's lack of funding, lack of expertise. You know, this is not a, 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 a type of job that you can find people, you know, experts or people who can do this job like on the street corner. These are, are people who are very specialized. Um, so there is a, a incredible backlog. Um, so that is also a concern, but any if there is a, an abuse complaint it, it 
USA curling is not supposed to hold on to it. You know, the, the law, the, the safe sport rules and regulations, which if you are in a, a U.S. national governing body, you sign on and you promise to obey these, these rules, you are supposed to forward any abuse complaints immediately to safe sport. You are not supposed to do your own investigations. You are not supposed to try and, and sell them on your own. You are supposed to send them to safe sport and let safe sport handle it. And finally, Nancy, it is often difficult to see the light at the end of the tunnel when discussing and or dealing with issues as dark and as unfortunate as what happened at the NWSL and the concerns it has raised, not only in the soccer community, but also in the curling community and elsewhere. That said, do you potentially see any positive coming out of this situation, perhaps some changes that might make the practice and competitive arenas the safe spaces that they should be for athletes? You know, I hope so. I I think, you know, one of the biggest takeaways, and I I hope we're already seeing this, is that when women report these things, or when anyone reports these things, believe them. You know, when, when don't discount their, their, their reports, their claims, what they're saying, don't, don't brush it off. Um, Don't, what was the the terminology that was used that with Paul Riley, that he was put in a bad place by a player. No, he put himself in a bad place because he was abusing women. Um, so I'm hopeful that this puts at least a little different light on that, um, makes people think twice when they hear reports like this. Um, and then, you know, there's some, have been some recommendations that the Yates report made, uh, that U.S. soccer has already said that it's going to adopt, uh, the NWSL has said it's going to adopt. I'm sure that there will be more of them after the joint investigation. So hopefully there will be some more guardrails. So there will be some more safeguards, because I think that was one of the things that we definitely saw was, you know, this league, it was the third women's soccer league that was started in the U.S. There were concerns about whether it was going to survive. And many of the women were reluctant to report or reluctant to follow up on their reports because they didn't want to be responsible for bringing down this league. They were so desperate for a place to play. Um, and so I hope that there will be some guardrails put in that will make women feel safe and that will, you know, protect not put the the health and future of a sports league ahead of the health and safety of the people who are playing in that sports league. My final guest this week is Kristen Conrad, vice chair of the Grand National Curling Club and almost as importantly, a fellow Buffalo Bills fan who joined me to discuss the relationship between the GNCC and USA Curling and the possibility that the GNCC could be expulsed from USA Curling at a members assembly later this week. So, Nancy, for those listening who may not have heard you in your other media appearances over the past few months, can you explain what the Grand National Curling Club or the GNCC is and what role it plays in the curling community within the region you cover? Sure. So I am the vice chair of the GNCC, which is so the Grand National Curling Club. And that is a region within the larger um, governing body of USA Curling. So it's it's kind of like curling Ontario of, you know, within, within curling Canada. And my position is vice chair, which is essentially the vice president of that, that board. And so within um, USA curling, you have about 10 or 11 regions. I have to fact check myself on that, but um, we have a, we are the largest region. We have about six to 7,000 members, depending on um, if you're counting paper clubs or not. And we have a, um, you know, we've been around for, over 150 years, almost 155 at this point. So we originally started out as Grand National Curling Club and were an association for all the curling clubs that existed in that time, a lot of them in the Northeast of the U.S. 
And um, over time, there developed a need for a, a national governing body. And so out of us formed USA Curling and all of the other regions. Um, we maintain our East Coast region. Uh, originally, like I said, it used to be the Northeast, but now it's, um, we've, of course, grown in the Southeast. I'm a Southeast curler myself. And so we have a, quite a large region overall. So what services does the GNCC offer to its clubs and member athletes, uh, Kristen? Sure. So apart from our our sort of regional side that's part of USA Curling, that's kind of the playdowns and um, different events that lead to national championships, et cetera. Um, we also offer our insurance program, so that, that's an optional offering for clubs to insure not just their liability on ice insurance, but everything off ice as well, the board, their equipment, um, you know, really anything that that, that club could uh, encounter along the way. And we offer rock rental programs for clubs getting up and running. We offer um, a lot of different training opportunities, a lot of different um, you know, advisory services through our, our mentor program. Um, we also have uh, we have a lot of different different events that weren't nece- necessarily part of the national structure before, like our five and unders, that um, really have gained steam and and started a national program out of that. Uh, So we've always been kind of leading the way on events in terms of the five and unders and um, some of the lesser known, like mixed doubles, I think we've done a pretty good job of, of promoting that as well within our region. Now, to provide some context, Kristen, all things being equal, what is the relationship between the GNCC and USA Curling supposed to look like? Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, um, USA Curling obviously has our high performance program, um, anything that leads to the Olympics or national championships, um, you know, marketing sponsorships, et cetera, for curling as a whole across the nation. And the region's job is kind of to organize all of the clubs within that that geographical area, excuse me, geographical area, and um, you know, essentially make sure that that our teams are able to get to those events um, via play down system. And then, you know, there are obviously other member services and things like that, that we want to be able to contribute to. And so um, in a perfect world, that relationship is collaborative. Uh, we have representation to share what our clubs need. And, and, you know, we are then in turn helping to, to build the national program. Now, to provide some context, and uh, because it'll be a key part of what we are about to discuss, uh, Kristen, my understanding is that a set amount of each membership paid within your region goes to the GNCC, and another set amount goes to the USA Curling, right? Is that correct? That's correct. Well, so so I'll, I'll explain a little bit more in, in detail about what the fee structure looks like for a club curler, for example. I think that'll help highlight where um, where all the money goes, essentially. So you pay your club your your dues right and that covers whatever it is to curl at that club plus your membership in the regional organization and your membership in the usa curling organization and the club obviously the club membership is is your highest cost because that's you know who's who's bearing the brunt of that cost is the club um your regional representation is is about for us it's 15 dollars a curler and so for the GNCC, that $15 goes into all of our other programs. And then your USA curling dues are $34. Um, there is a way to essentially pay as an individual curler for the USAC, but it is, um, it's a little bit, most clubs don't adopt that model yet because it's not really baked. So right now, what most clubs are doing is they are cutting a check, one to GNCC, 
and then one to USAC. And so they're they're handing their funds directly to USAC. The GNCC does not collect dues uh, for the USAC and pass them on. So we used to be a pass-through until about 2017, I believe. And after that, um, USAC started collecting on their own, and we haven't been involved in that process generally since. Now, I think it's fair to say, Kristen, that the COVID-19 pandemic had a very negative impact on curling clubs around the world. There are several clubs that closed in 2020 that have yet to reopen. And even the clubs that are currently open had to go a season, sometimes two seasons, while generating only a fraction of the revenue that they typically generate during a curling season. As a curling administrator, uh, you observed the impact of the pandemic on curling clubs from up close. Can you speak to what that impact has been? Because, as we'll discuss shortly, it has certainly exacerbated the situation that is currently evolving between the GNCC and the USAC? Sure. So I'll say first about the GNCC, I'll kind of speak for that side, that we um, were very fortunate because we are completely volunteer run. Um, So we don't have the overhead of payroll, essentially. Um, We have pretty low expenses, especially if there are no events and things like that. So during the pandemic, um, we were very financially sound and were able to offer assistance to all of our clubs in the way of not charging dues for that 2020 to 2021 season. So that was a, you know, we, we didn't charge any dues. We kind of supported where we could. Um, and, and our clubs though, of course, many were closed. Um, I think the Southeast, you had a few more open than in, in the Northeast, the Northeast shut down a little bit more, you know, popula- population density and such. Um, COVID was a little bigger problem when, when it isn't as spaced out. And so I think a lot of the Southern clubs started to open in, um, late 2020 and some shut down again, but, you know, certainly um, I I know Charlotte, for example, opened back up in late 2020 and, you know, we've curled in some way, shape or form ever since, and and then really um, have been full steam ahead since 2021. Um, USA Curling decided that they would not charge dues if the club was not curling. So there, there was that if the club was curling, they continued to charge dues for that year. Um, what happened in terms of the dues situation, as you know, like you said, the clubs you know, have to make their own financial requirements to stay alive. So there was that situation. Um, plus, there was a little bit of a bigger issue going on there where USA Curling was trying to implement a lot of changes in 2020. Um, there was a, a, a individual membership with um, sort of a CRM system that they tried to launch called Sport 80. Um, they were sort of trying to get that going at the same time when many clubs were closed. Um, it had big volunteer implications about for larger clubs, you know, kind of directing their members to also sign up for this USA curling tool. And, you know, that, that creates a lot of confusion. And so there were a lot of, I'll just say, ha- heavy handed decisions that came down during that time. And you saw clubs like St. Paul, for example, kind of push back and say, you know, we're not doing this. We're not going for mandatory insurance was another one. Um, There was the Sport 80 piece. And we saw that and we were a little worried. And we did have a a fairly large club say, hey, we're not, you know, we can't afford this and we don't agree with what's going on. And, you know, we're we're essentially resigning from the USAC. Um, This happened at other clubs as well within our region. And the question, of course, then came up, if we resign from USA Curling, will you kick us out? And so we took that question to our membership. 
and you know as we are our entire fiduciary duty is to our members right and so we took that that question to our membership and knowing that especially with small clubs them being kicked out of GNCC means we would have to take their rock rentals away we'd have to take the insurance that they've been paying for away um it's just kind of an ugly situation for that club it could force them to close and so in that case our members sort of understood that and understood that you know if we cross a line where we weren't 95 percent in compliance with dues payments to the usac that gncc could face sanctioning and being kicked out knowing that our members still voted not to kick these clubs out you know these are our friends we've curled with them for years we know each other well you know it's just it it doesn't feel right and so we you know we made a lot of efforts to kind of negotiate along the way and and most of that was shut down um we you know essentially i i personally said look there are clubs that resigned let them be you know let them let them do their own thing come up with a positive value proposition that we can pass to them we'll help you get in front of them so you can sell them back um you know there there really there wasn't our relationship was strained at that point certainly um but there was never really any any give or any negotiation back from USA curling. And so we, um, it was assumed that we were um, under that 95% compliance threshold. And I say assumed because we don't, we didn't charge dues during the year in question, which was 2020 to 2021. So we don't actually have any sense of how many members we had during that time period. So we don't know that. Therefore they don't know that. And it was based on an assumption. So it's a, it's a little stickier than just clubs not being able to afford dues. It's a little bit bigger than that. Was the relationship between the GNCC and USA Curling strained before these current events uh, popped up over the past couple of seasons? Or did you have a good working relationship prior to all this, uh, Kristen? No, I would say there was, there was some strain. So I, just for context, I joined the organization in 2020. Uh, yeah, 2020. So right during the pandemic. And um you know, I know that the relationship was strained at that point. I think it had been for a few years. And I know that especially at the heart of that was, you know, there were some personality conflicts and things like that. Um, it didn't seem to be as heavily about business, you know, the business of curling as it was about just individuals who didn't necessarily like to hang out with each other. Um, so it is now it's much more of a business issue. Um, you know, we feel like they're sort of interfering with our fiduciary duty and, you know, we're a thorn in their side and I know that. And it's, um, you know, we, we want to maintain our regional status because we want to ensure that our clubs have representation, right? And so we are fighting to do that. And I think it's, um, we can absolutely get to a point where we can work together. Um, we just need a bit of we just need a bit of good faith, I think. And and our board has had a lot of a lot of changes, a lot of mindset shifts, I'll say, even just since I joined the board. And I would say that we're we're very willing to work on this and to change and to be collaborative. And really that's you know, as the vice chair and, and I can I can speak for our president too. Like that's what we want. We want a, a relationship where we work together. We want a relationship where if they say, Hey, we're we're going to you know, build an insurance program, and we know you've had one for years. Um, we want to make ours better. What should we do? We would have gladly even combined our insurance program with theirs. Um, instead, the decision was, 
we're putting in mandatory insurance and you need to close down your insurance program. And we said, well, we've been doing this for a long time. Mandatory doesn't work because you have a lot of clubs that already get their insurance um, from their arena, for example. And so just situations like that where it was very, like I said, heavy handed. I will use that word over and over because it absolutely is that. And, you know, the lack of collaboration has really made this relationship even more strained. As we'll discuss in a few moments, uh, there is a chance that the GNCC will be expulsed from USA Curling at a member's assembly schedule for October 21st. Is the GNCC currently in a position, Kristen, to continue providing services to its member clubs should you be expulsed from the USAC? Yeah, I, you know, I think the GNCC has, is not going anywhere and will continue to exist as a service organization no matter what. Um, that's always the heart of what we do. And, you know, we'll continue to add services, we'll continue to change, you know. it's I don't foresee a very large impact on that side at, at all, depending on what happens. It's, it's really going to be um, very consistent from a service organization perspective. In terms of the regional side, that's where the impact is. So today, um, if our clubs wanted to maintain their voting rights, for example, for the members' assembly and, and maintain kind of a full membership status, they were asked to go at large. And essentially, that means that they are just kind of sitting out there and they have a representative, but because it's not a, it's not a region, it's not a, a collective organized situation, um, you know, voices like like our, I'll, I'll say Rocket City, for example, which is in Alabama, and I believe their arena pays for their insurance, or they pay for their insurance through their arena. Um, with that, they don't need insurance, but they're such a small voice that they wouldn't be able to speak up on their own necessarily. And and in this at-large system, it it just doesn't work well to to share what the club, the collective club needs are. So that's, that is a big concern, and especially with the way that things are being run currently and the change that's necessary, um, you know, we need that voice. We need that, that large voice that puts all six or 7,000 of our curlers together and says, like, hey, this isn't okay, and we need to change this. And, you know, I, I understand why the desire would be for there to be not that big of a voice. Um, so... For me, that is the huge impact there. It really is about representation. It really is about uh, being able to change things from the inside. Because once we're outside of it, we don't have that voice. Now, there have been some people advance the idea, Kristen, that the uh, NGNCC is rich enough that they could have paid the USAC fees for each of its clubs. I'm not sure it would have been feasible for the GNCC to offset $34 per curler, considering the area and the number of curlers that are included within your region. But I'm curious if the GNCC looked into potentially offsetting some of the USAC costs for each of its member clubs. Well, I can share what he's speaking about in terms of all the money that we have in the bank, because I've heard that quote before. And in terms of the money that we have in the bank, so to speak, and we have a large amount of money in three different trusts, which are not run by our, our board that I'm a part of. They're run by the board of trustees. And those funds are specifically donated to and set aside to do three things. Uh, one is to start a juniors program. One is to start and build a dedicated facility, and the other is to help clubs recover from catastrophic events. So those three funds are set aside for those purposes. Um, we can't just say, you know, they were donated for the purpose of starting a dedicated club, but we're going to take it and pay the, the USAC dues for a club that can't. You know, it's just not, 
it's not legally possible. So, you know, while we have a contingency fund, uh, it's not enough to make up all the dues of all the curlers in the GNCC. That that's just not even feasible. Um, so within our within our existing financial structure, that's not a decision that we could support. Um, and I will say that that some clubs are not interested in being part of the USAC, which is a bigger issue, right? It's the clubs that resigned did so intentionally, and some did so not just because of a financial issue. So, Kristen, we are speaking on October 17th, and there is a USA Members Assembly on October 21st, where, as we mentioned earlier, there will be a vote on whether the GNCC should be expulsed from the USAC, because currently less than 95% of the clubs within your region are not members of USA Curling. From what you've been able to gather from your sources within the larger US curling community, do you sense that the membership is leaning towards your expulsion, or do you think the vote will allow the GNCC to remain part of the uh, USA Curling? I would say at this point, it is a bit of a toss-up. We don't necessarily know. Uh, there are quite a few variables, one of them being in the large percentage of votes that um, that come from our athlete represent- representation. We don't necessarily know if they will go one way or the other or split votes, et cetera. Um, that's a really huge potential impact in terms of, of overall voting numbers. So we don't necessarily have a sense of, of if this comes up for the votes, whether it will go our way or not. Um, and I say if, and that's a very important thing because we do have um, a judicial committee hearing, and, and I know it's uh, getting close to game day here, but we do have a judicial committee hearing schedule that's going to be scheduled this week as long as um, both sides are able to meet all of our deadlines. Um, but the judicial committee has been very helpful and gracious in terms of making sure that that sort of due process can happen. So. That is, um, it could potentially, uh, if we state our case and, and the, you know, the entire committee and, and all the people that would be kind of overseeing that action are in agreement that that case makes sense, then this could be tabled, I'll say at least, or, or taken off the agenda. Can you provide more details about this uh, judicial committee, uh, Kristen? What, uh, what does the process look like and what are you expecting when your group appears before the committee? Sure. So we were um, we were asked to essentially put together a an argument for our um, for our position, our desire to stay as part of the organization, and, and why we we think that um, why we think that it makes sense for us to do so based on some bylaws and policies and things like that. Um, I will say, you know, we have I feel I feel that we have a very strong argument. Um, you know, as I mentioned, this is much more than just not paying dues, right? It's it's a bit bigger than that, and there have been a lot of things that have gone wrong and, you know, things that we're trying to work together on. But um, all that said, the Judicial Committee is part of the um, U.S. Curling Association, um, a part of their their overall process in their bylaws, and they essentially, um, I believe that they gather a group of people to kind of oversee this case and and we write our proposal and the USAC is able to respond to that proposal and then they review both sides and and kind of a a judiciary process for lack of a better term and and, you know really take a look at it from a another lens and and try to be as impartial as possible it seems so is it is it it internal Christian Christian or is it is it third party 
It is internal. That said, um, I know it's run by volunteers. And so people who are not, uh, well, I shouldn't say I, I know that, but I, I know that there are volunteers who are on that committee. And so, and from what I gather, they get involvement of people who are impartial to both organizations. So I don't, I don't have a sense exactly of who's involved. So I don't want to overspeak there, but um, you know, I, I feel like it is, um, yeah, I feel like it's going to be a fair process based on what I've seen. Now, on a completely different topic, Chris, and curling was trending on U.S. social media platforms this weekend, and unlike when Tim Schuster won gold in Pyeongchang, this time curling trended because of the Yates report that was released on October 3rd, and the current push by many within the U.S. curling community to have Jeff Plush removed as CEO of the USAC because of his role in the NWSL situation highlighted in the Yates report. As an executive representative of one of the regions that fall under the USAC umbrella, how concerned are you? and the GNCC about this story and are you disappointed with the way it has been handled so far? Yeah, I, I would go so far as to say I'm not just disappointed, but I'm appalled. I mean, I'm, I'm really appalled with how this has been handled. Um, I've read the report, the entire report from that investigation. So I think one of the things that's important to understand is that that investigation was commissioned by the U.S. Soccer Federation and they brought in a former U.S. Attorney General, um, Sally Yates, to to really go deeply into this issue. Um, the the issue was raised in 2021 by an article in the Athletic, and and it alleged that um, essentially the NWSL helped to cover up, whether intentional or otherwise, uh, helped to cover up many abuses that were happening within the organization and. When this news story broke, um, I'll share that I, you know, as a female athlete and somebody who's been involved in, in sports my, my whole life, um, yeah, it spoke pretty deeply to me. I, I really feel for the victims who are going through something like that. And, and it's, it is something that is, as I think any athlete really at a young age, we're kind of conditioned to just, yeah look the other way and, and just like, it just let it, you know, let it be and let these creeps continue to exist in, in organizations. And it, it's just, it's an awful way to be. And it's an awful thing that happens, but it's, it's real. And it's, um, you know, it's something that I would love to see changed. And I know many, many, if not if all good people would want to see it changed. Right. And so this, this story coming out, uh, not just from a moral perspective, but from a, a business perspective too. The GNCC recommended that Jeff Plush be put on administrative leave um, in 2021 when this story broke so he could cooperate with the investigation fully, essentially clear his name. Hopefully that was that was the, the intention, right? Like work with them, clear your name and then come back. And, it, you know, it wasn't a personal attack. It's very much, you know, we we wanted it to not be the case. Right. Like we wanted this to go away and, and for him to to have acted in a manner that that was you know was satisfactory at very least but reading that report now so now that's a year later um and nothing was done and he did not participate in the sally yates investigation um usa curling did their own investigation we've never seen the results of that report um you know now a year later we are in this situation where the full report is out it looks very bad um everything that i've seen points to at the very least, the minimal amount of action taken by Jeff Plush to 
protect these athletes. And I, I don't, I mean, if, if it was intentional, like he needs to go, but even if it's not intentional, he needs to go. He was a steward of the sport and he was a steward of those athletes. And it is, it is absolutely appalling that he is still being able to be in a position of power or over an organization that includes athletes. I, I just am, I'm extremely disappointed that USA Curling has doubled down on protecting this situation. Um, and then, you know, many, many others have kind of, obviously the curling community is pretty up in arms about this, including the DEI task force, including you know, many clubs, including the GMCC. I can speak pretty freely because I know my board feels the same way. Um, it is just a, an awful situation. And even if, even if he, if, if Jeff Flush was a, you know, he thought he was doing the right thing. He didn't do the right thing from what I've read. And at this point, if you believe that maybe he did the right thing, you still have to think that he cannot perform this job. Like he cannot be successful in this job. He cannot bring in sponsors. He cannot continue to lead with, with a, a group of curlers, a huge group of curlers who does not trust this, this person and this leadership. So, you know, for me, it's a, this is a no brainer. And, and what you're seeing, you know, in this issue, in, the poorly managed finances of USA Curling and in the issue of our, of our membership issue. It's all, it all leads back to poor leadership and, and our sport deserves better. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to all my guests for joining me to discuss these important issues currently impacting the U.S. curling community. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, the Rock Logic podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock. And you're listening to the From the Hack podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.